Now, friends, as we come to the fourth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, we're still in this section here of justification by faith, where Abraham has been our illustration. Now, here in the fourth chapter, we see that there's something else that comes through faith in Christ that you could never get by works of the law. And that is that it gives you the position of sons of God. Now, when I say that, that it brings you into the place of a full-grown son. Now, actually, we are babes when we start out, and we are to grow to maturation. But he gives us a position of a full-grown son so that we are given a capacity that we would not otherwise have. Now, I want you to notice this, and we need to again see the background that Paul is giving to us here. I'm reading chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, and the word now for child here is not the word for children that was back in the third chapter, verse 26, where it should be sons of God. There it's weos, and here it's nepios, and that means just minor children. That means children that are probably not even teenagers at first, just little ones in the family. Now he says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, that is immature, he differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. Now, again, we'll have to go back to the Roman times and Roman customs to see Paul's illustration in action. We said before that in a Roman home that certain servants had charge of different possessions of the master. Some had charge of the chattels, other of the livestock. Others had charge of his bank account and his business, kept books for him, and others had charge of the children. And now a little one that's born into the home, the servant takes him, dresses him up in a little play suit that he doesn't look any different from the rest of the children of the servants that are there. He's just like the rest of them. He has to mind them. He has to obey them. And we're told here in verse 2, "...but he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father." Now, what time is that? That is the time that the Father recognizes that he is now capable of making decisions of his own, and he brings him into the position of a full-grown son. And it was a ceremony that they had in that day that when a boy reached the age of maturity, that is, and you'll notice it was the father who determined whether he reached the age of maturity. It wasn't an arbitrary law as we have today. It used to be 21, and now politicians, they want to get more votes, and so they made it now so the 18-year-olds can vote. And don't misunderstand me. I think there's some folk as mature at 18 as they'd be at 21, and very frankly, I think that there's some that are 65-year-old today that haven't yet reached maturity. But back in those days, it was the father that decided when they reached the age of maturity, that is, the boy. And then they had a ceremony that was known as the toga virilis. 
And at that ceremony, he put a robe on him, a ring on him. It was the ring of the father. And this boy now, he is a full-grown son. He has that position in the family. Now, look at this for just a moment. And we can see it, I think, by an illustration. Here is a Roman family in Paul's day. The father, he belongs to the Praetorian Guard, the select guard of Caesar. And that means he's a commander. And so Caesar decides to make a foray up into Gaul because there are a bunch of heathen pagans up there. And you know who they were? They were my ancestors, and I think they were your ancestors too. Believe me, they were heathen. And Caesar went up there to push them back. They're a bunch of barbarians. He didn't want them in the Roman Empire. It was civilized. So he goes up there to push them back. And that campaign that he thought had last a year, it stretched out to maybe three years. And so this father that had told his little boy and his wife and the rest of the family goodbye, well, he's been gone three years. Now he comes back. And the family's all glad to see him. And he goes in, you know, to shave. And in a moment, they hear him yelling out. He says, who's been using my electric razor? Of course, they didn't have electric razors in that day, but whatever they had. And the servants all come running and they say, your son's been using it. And he says, you don't mean that boy's grown up now and is using an electric razor? And you can see that he's not letting his beard grow because he's using this electric razor. And he says, call him in here. And they call him in, and the father looks at him, goes over, put his arm around him, and he says, son, I didn't realize you'd grown up. We're going to have the toga virilis, going to make you a full-grown son. So they invite the aunts and the uncles and the grandmas and grandpas in, and they come in, and now this boy's made a full-grown son. He has a ring on And that boy has a ring that when he puts it down in the wax is the same signature as his father. Because you see, the old man couldn't write, neither can the boy. What they do is just use that ring. But he has the same authority as the father has. Now he's been brought into that position. And that servant, it used to paddle him. Better not paddle him now because he'll be paddling that servant. He's been brought into this place of a full-grown son. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's move on down here. He says, even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. And that means under the law. Paul is saying here that it was the childhood of the nation Israel when they were under the rules and regulations. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Or I can change that, and it just has the same value. Born of a woman, born under the law. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ was born under the law. Born of a woman. She's a Jewish woman. We have out here on the West Coast a woman out here that's saying that Jesus didn't belong to any nation at all. That far as race is concerned... He belonged to no race. May I say how absolutely puerile, senseless that anyone can be that is attempting to take a saccharine sweetness position that has no meaning whatsoever. And the 
woman at the well, I think, knows more than the woman out here knows today because she said, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She thought he was a Jew, and our Lord didn't correct her. So I would take it that she was accurate, and if you don't mind, I'll follow her, and not some of these soft-headed and soft-hearted folk today that are trying to play down the fact of who he really was. He had a perfect humanity. Also, he was God manifest in the flesh. And today they're tampering with that. May I say to you, the only historical Jesus that we have is one that the oldest creed in the church says, He was very man of very man. He's very God of very God. And I go along with that, because that's exactly what the Word of God teaches. Now, here in the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem them that were under the law. Now, they were children before. You see, the law never made anyone a son of God, as we saw last time. And he says, now to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, adoption here doesn't mean what it means to us. Adoption to us today means that here's a couple that may not have any children. They go out to a home where they have children for adoption, and they see a precious little baby there. Now, hearts go out to it, and then they adopt it. It becomes legal. It has to go through court action and the little one becomes their child. And that's called adoption. But that's not what we have here. Actually, it's the man's own son. And that's what we were talking about a moment ago when he had the ceremony of Toga Virilis. That is, he's adopted now. He's adopted as a full-grown son. And the word in the Greek is weothasia, which means to place as a son. He's placed now as a full-grown son of God. Now, maybe this doesn't mean much to you, but this has meant a great deal to me. And if you will pardon me, a personal illustration, only way I know a lot of these things is by pouring it through my own hopper and having experienced it myself. I do not think that you can draw truth from experience but you certainly can use truth. And if you've had an experience that corroborates it, then that can be true. Now, over in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, we're told, as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, this means simply this, that the truth that's in the Word of God can only be interpreted by the Spirit of God. And until he interprets it, you can't understand it. He alone can interpret the Word of God. That's the thing that makes the difference today in certain men. A man can bring to the Word of God a brilliant mind, and he can learn something about the history, and he can study the archaeology, 
and he can study the language. He can become an expert in reading Hebrew or reading Greek, but he still misses the meaning. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the teacher. And until the Spirit of God teaches us, and even Isaiah the prophet had said that in Isaiah 64, 4, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him, that is, for Christ. Now, if you want to know about Christ, the Spirit of God will reveal it to you, but he alone can. Now, it means, therefore, that a mature Christian, one that's been in the Word for years, he is as helpless in studying the Bible as a newborn babe in Christ is, because the Spirit of God will have to teach each one of them. This is the personal illustration. When I first started in the ministry, I was so far behind everybody else. When I went back to school, I'd been out several years. I was the youngest one in my class. When I had to quit at the death of my father, I was the oldest one in the class when I came back to school three or four years later. And I had to make up a great deal. And I found out I was very ignorant of the Bible. I'd never seen a Bible in my home, never heard a prayer, and I didn't even know the books of the Bible. In fact, I was ignorant, friends. No one could have been more ignorant of the Word of God than I was. And I felt it. I tell you, I spent time memorizing the books of the Bible at first, and many of things that I did not even know before. And therefore, I developed, I guess you would call an inferiority complex. When I would preach as a young preacher, I'd see people with gray hair in the congregation, and I'd say, my, what I'm going to say today will be baby stuff for those folk because they really know the Bible. You know, I had my eyes open. I found out that there are a lot of folk that have got gray hair that are still babes in Christ. They just never have grown up. Now, he's put us into the place, and this was the great truth that was given to me, that the Spirit of God could teach me as a young believer as much as any mature Christian. And that mature Christian would have to let the Spirit of God be his teacher, and I would too. And we both could understand it if the Spirit of God was our teacher. Now, that was brand new for me, and that was wonderful for me. That did more for me than anything at the very beginning. And so I found out that probably that gray-haired man down there didn't really know as much about the Bible as he should have known, and maybe didn't know as much as I knew about it. And may I put it then like this today, as I came today to the study, I'm as helpless as anyone out yonder listening to this broadcast who has just accepted Christ as your Savior. The same Spirit of God that I believe is leading me and teaching me, He can teach you. And He's brought you, if you are His child, He's brought you into the position of a full-grown son, into the adoption. And my friend, there's nothing quite as wonderful as that. And that gave me a confidence and does to this good day. May I say to you, to know today that the Spirit of God will lead you and guide you into all truth if you just want to know it, if you're willing for Him to be your teacher.
Now we come here as we move down into chapter 4 of Galatians to the third thing that the Spirit of God will do for us and that faith in Christ does for us that the law could never do for us. And that is, he can give to us the experience of sons of God. And I want you to notice this here because this is very important for us to see. Verse 6, "...and because ye are sons." That's a very strong statement. "...because you're sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father." Or as Paul puts it in the epistle to the Romans, "...the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the sons of God. Now, that is a very wonderful statement, too, by the way. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, dwell in you. And he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, but if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live as sons. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. If you're a child of God, you will want to be led by the Spirit of God. The flesh may get a victory in your life, but it'll never make you happy. You'll never be satisfied with it. Because for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You don't need to say, my, i just not living as I should live, and I wonder whether I'm a child of God, my friend. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit. We're the children of God. Now, that's in Romans the eighth chapter, I began about the ninth verse and read down through the sixteenth verse, because that passage parallels this one here, and actually this is an abridged edition of that that we have here in Galatians, and I wanted you to see all of it. Now, I believe in experience because I have a background, as I've indicated being brought up as a boy sent to a Methodist Sunday school. I went down to a little Methodist penitent bench when an evangelist held a meeting in our town underneath a brush arbor back of an unpainted Methodist church. And I went forward and knelt there as a boy. And I know this, that they talked about experience. And a lot of people had experiences there. And I know that my heart was open. And I wept as a boy. And I believe that we need an experience today. I wish that there was more emphasis on that. But I do not think it comes through seeking some high level and thinking that we might be superior to somebody else. We are always God's foolish little children. We are always filled with ignorance and stubbornness and sin and fears and weakness. Or are you? <laughs> I have a notion you are, and I don't care who you are. You see, we are never wonderful, actually. We're not. He is wonderful, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wonderful, and faith in him will give us an experience. Oh, I know that. How wonderful it is. And I think we need an experience today. I think a great many people need an experience with God. Now, what kind of an experience? And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, I'm told that that word Abba was never translated because the translators who made this, the King James, had a great reverence for the Word of God. They treated it as the Word of God. And they had high regard for it. When they came to this Word, they didn't dare translate it. I'm told that it's a very intimate, personal Word, and actually it means my daddy. And friends, you just don't talk about God like that, do you? Or do you? You ought not to. He's my heavenly Father, and I bow before him recognize him as my heavenly Father. But I'd hesitate to just say that. But I do think there are times, my friend, in your experience, when you can say, my Father. (laughs) And that means that you and I haven't reached a high plane. (laughs) We never become, you know, those folk today that reach the place where you get rid of this old nature that we've got. It's always there with us. Then Paul says here in verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, the Spirit, therefore, gives to us an experience of being a son of God, whereby we can cry out, not just saying words of being pious, but we can say, Father. We can call God our Father, because the Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit. Now, that gives us an experience of being a son of God. Now, there are a great many people today that believe that the only way you can have an experience is either by reaching a high degree of sanctification, you've got to become holy, or else you've got to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as they call it. And that if you don't get up to that level, you just will never have an experience, my friend. And I'd like to say this for the encouragement of many weak and new believers. You can have an experience as the Son of God without reaching those levels, because that comes to you through faith in Jesus Christ. We move from the Word of God to experience never from experience to truth, because everybody's experience would be different. And I'd not know whose experience to follow. I get letters of people that have had all kinds of experience, and I'd much rather follow the Word of God. There was a great preacher in this country. I take it from what I've heard about it. He's probably the greatest preacher America ever produced, and it was Paul Rader. And for some reason, I don't know the background that Paul Rader came into a great deal of criticism because he, like any individual, wanted an experience with God. And he wanted to reach a high plane. And there have been those that said that he taught sinless perfection. 
And then there are others, and even members of his family, and I think they know better than anyone else. They've told me he didn't teach that. He was misunderstood. But he used certain expressions, like many of us do, that are misunderstood. I find that on the radio I make certain statements, and I get a letter in, and they say, I said something. I go back and listen to it. I didn't say it at all. I was misunderstood. And I can well understand he was misunderstood. But he used some very striking expressions. One of them one day on the platform, why, he said, that old nature that you and I have got is just like an old dead cat. Well, I like it that far. And he says, what you need to do is just reach down and get that old dead cat by the tail and throw it from you as far as you can. And I can say amen to that. I wish I could get rid of the old nature I got there. Old Vernon McGee, I'll be honest with you, my enemy doesn't know about him what I know about him, and I want to tell you I wouldn't mind getting rid of him. And so the crowd would always say when he had mentioned that, they'd say amen. I'd say amen too. I wish I could get rid of it. Well, one day on the platform, Dr. Chafer was sitting there, and Dr. Chafer came up to him after and said, Paul, you forget that that old dead cat has nine lives, and when you throw him away today... He's going to be right back there tomorrow, and you're going to have to throw him again. You see, you and I never become wonderful saints of God. We have this experience by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me read it again. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. And he's the one that cries, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, I think that many times you and I can go along in just an average way, and we don't have an experience. Sometimes the Christian life becomes very drab and just a little monotonous. But there are times, and I think it's times when he puts us on trial, when we're really being tested, and many of you are being tested today that are listening to me. And I wish you'd hear me just for this moment, because I recall that when I was taken to the hospital to be operated on for cancer, no one was ever as frightened as I was. I'm a coward, and I just don't like hospitals. I thank God for them, but still don't like them. And I, you know, got on that funny-looking nightgown they give you that's open in the back instead of the front. And I was trying to get up in bed, and I couldn't make it. And the nurse came in and said, what's the matter? Are you sick? And I said, no, I'm scared to death. And she helped me get in bed. And then I thought when she came in and said, we're getting you ready for the operation, I said, just let me have a few moments alone. And I'd visited in that hospital many times as a pastor, in fact, several hundred times, and I just did like Hezekiah. I turned my face to the wall, and I said, Lord, I want you to know that I've been here many times, and I've patted people on the hand and told them that you'd be with them, and I prayed for them, and then I walked out. But I'm not walking out today. I'm going to have to stay in here and be operated on myself. And I don't know the outcome. And it was just about that time that, may I say, I just welled up, and I just said, because I had some things I wanted to tell God. I wanted to tell him how he ought to work it out. And I just said to him, My father, I'm in your hands. 
And whatever you want done, you do it. (laughs) You're my father. And I don't know, he was so wonderful to me. May I say to you, that's when he becomes a reality to you, my beloved. And we need that today. Abba, Father, the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, I don't wish you any trouble, but I think it's generally in times of trouble that he makes himself real to us. But I do hope that if you haven't had a wonderful experience with our wonderful Heavenly Father, you might have that. And I'm not being pious when I say that either, my friend. Now, I'm going to have to move on down through here. But I probably ought to say that there have been so many other men that have testified to this. John Payton, the great missionary down in the New Hebrides, and you can still see the effects of that man's work in that area. He went out as a young man with a young bride, and their first child was born, and the child died and the bride died. He buried him. He was among cannibals. He sat for days there. I think it was about two weeks over that grave, keeping watch over it, keeping them from digging up the bodies and eating them. And that man said, his testimony was, that if God had not made himself real to him, and if the Lord Jesus Christ had not made himself real to him, he said, I would have gone mad. <laughs> He'll make himself real to you. Paul said that he was pretty lonely over there in that Mamertine prison. But he said, all others forsook me. But he said, the Lord stood by me. <laughs> it's wonderful to have that kind of a father today, friends, that I don't care what happens. He's going to come in and be with you. <laughs> At that time, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. It's wonderful in this world today to have someone like that, and I trust you have him today. Now let me move on. I'm reading now verse 8. How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. And he's speaking of the fact that they were idolaters. That Galatian country, there in Asia Minor, I've been into those cities where the seven churches were in, some other cities there. My, how they were given over to idolatry, how they were given over to the worship of idols. And Paul calls them by nature that are no gods. In fact, of the matter is, the way Paul spoke of them is that they were nothings. The idols are vanities, as he called them, are nothings. They're just nothing. And he says they're speechless. He calls them again. In 1 Corinthians, he calls them dumb idols. They're not only nothing, but they're a nothing that say nothing. And two zeros are pretty much like nothing, by the way. And Paul says, they're not real. (laughs) They can't make themselves real to you. Now, Paul says, but now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, that's the important thing that he knows us, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly, elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Now, Paul is saying here that to go into the law and to make it an idol is just same as idolatry. Paul says you came out of idolatry and now you're coming back into idolatry by the law. He says here, ye observe days and months and times and years. 
Paul, you remember, said to the Colossians in 2, 16, "...see that no one judge you in respect to a Sabbath day." Well, I am not judged in that only by the Lord Jesus. Very frankly, I'm making this tape on a Sunday morning. I have very few Sundays now that I'm not preaching. And when I'm not preaching, I love to come down to the radio headquarters. No one is here. And I just sit here in my study, as I'm doing right now, and I make this tape. And it blesses my own heart, my own life. And this here means I'm not observing any days. You observe days and months. Now, months here means like the new moons that they were observing in that day. And you remember, they did it in time of the kings, and the prophets warned them against them. And it says, and times, rather seasons, and that means the feasts. And God had given them seven feasts, but they all had pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in years, and years, of course, would refer to the sabbatic years. In other words, that would put them completely back under the law. And very frankly, if you're going to adopt a Sabbath day today, that is Saturday, and observe it, then you ought to take the whole ball of wax, which would include a sabbatic year, would include the new moon and months, you see. And it would include also the year of Jubilee. All of that comes in the same package, and it's very difficult to take something out and not take all of it if you're going to take the law. James, you remember, said, you break it in one little point, you're guilty of all of it. That is, you're guilty of being a lawbreaker. And Christians today, we recognize certain days and months and times and years, but very candidly, one day is just like any other day. There's no difference as far as God is concerned. We put an emphasis on certain things. But let's be very careful that we recognize that any other day is just as great a day to worship God and praise Him as Christmas is, or Thanksgiving, or Easter. Every day ought to be an Easter. Every day ought to tell us He came back from the dead. My every day ought to be a holiday for a believer, you see. And this idea of trying to observe certain things, going through certain rituals, my friend, it has no value. Don't misunderstand. I believe in celebrating Christmas and Easter, but it's not an idol. I'm not worshiping these things, and I trust you or not. Now he says in verse 11, I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. And he's saying here in a very nice way that I think maybe I wasted my time among you. You see, what he's saying is to turn to the law. Now that they've been saved by grace, it's the same as returning to their former idolatry. Ye have known God, not by law, but by faith in Christ. Now in verse 12, he says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. Ye have not injured me at all. And the American Standard Version here of 19.1 has it like this. I beseech you, brethren, become as I am, for I also am become as ye are. In other words, Paul says, we're all on the same plane. We're all believers, and we're all in the body of Christ. And in view of that, we ought to be very polite one with another. Paul uses utmost politeness in this strong language, you see. He's being very polite. And I'd like to say today to 
Many folk who listen to our program, and they continue to listen, you can disagree with me, and very frankly, and I wouldn't want you to let this out, I hope you won't tell anybody this, we'll keep it a secret, I could be wrong on many places. And I find out as I go along today that I'm learning new things every day about the Word of God. And I'm just a learner, and I don't claim to be any more than that. And I feel like that we ought to be polite when we disagree. Now, you can disagree with me, and I can disagree with you. And I may state my position very strongly because I have real convictions I determined a long time ago when I was in college and a liberal professor was pulling the rug out from under me. He's about to undermine me. And I found out later on that he wasn't quite the boy that he gave out that he was. In fact, I found out he's not quite the scholar that he was impressing us with. And I found out many things about him afterward. But he almost took the rug out from under me. And I told the Lord then... I said, I want to get out of the ministry because I don't want to go into it with any reservations. And I have made many mistakes, but I've never stood in a pulpit and had a reservation about that which I was preaching. I believed it with all my heart. And you want to know something right now, friends? I'm telling you exactly what I believe about the Word of God. Some man says, you're just giving the interpretation of J. Vernon McGee. You want to know something? You're right. That's the only interpretation I know, is that. The Spirit of God has to teach me as it teach anyone else. And I have a conviction about it until I'm shown otherwise. And I want to make that very clear. And so Paul here uses utmost politeness in this very strong language. Now he moves into this personal part. Verse 13, "...ye know how through infirmity of the flesh..." I preach the gospel unto you at the first. Now, Paul makes an appeal to him on the basis of his thorn in the flesh. What was that thorn? Well, let's read on. And my temptation, or my testing, which was in my flesh, ye despise not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, that thorn evidently made Paul very unattractive, and I think we'll see in just a moment what it is. He says, now, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, I believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was eye trouble. And I can't conceive of them wanting to pluck out their eyes and giving their eyes to him if what he really needed was another leg. He'd lost a leg or an arm or something. But I take it that the reason they wanted to pluck out eyes to give to him because that's what he needed. Now, apparently, Paul had that disease of the eyes that is common, we're told, in that land, and that there's excessive pus that runs out of the eye. And you can well understand that Paul, as he was ministering, could have been very unattractive to look upon. And Paul says, you just ignored that. And then he goes on to say, since they'd received him so wonderfully when he came there and preached the gospel to them and they were saved, now he says, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I've always wanted to 
put on a pulpit on the side that the preacher stands on, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And I made that statement, and a very wonderful officer put that on my pulpit in downtown Los Angeles. I understand it's still there. But I wanted to put in front, never had the nerve to do it, I wanted to put this verse. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And you know, a lot of people today really don't want the preacher to tell the truth. They want him to say something nice that will, you know, smooth their feathers down and, you know, sort of stroke them and make them feel good. We all like to have our back rubbed. And there's a lot of back rubbing going on from the pulpit today. That's no place for it, by the way. The truth should be declared there. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And Paul's being very personal, you see. Now, will you notice here in verses 17 and 18, and says, "...they zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them." In other words, they are preaching law to you for their benefit, not for yours at all. They'd be able to say, "...my, look, we've made these converts, you see." They'd count noses. Verse 18, But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. I probably ought to do something today that I did not do before, and that is I probably ought to go to the American Revised Version, or the American Standard Version, I should say, of 19.1 that I have here before me. And if you'll bear with me while I find this passage... And I'm turning to the fourth chapter, verse 17 and 18 in Galatians. Now listen to this. They zealously seek you in no good way. Nay, they desire to shut you out, that ye may seek them. But it is good to be zealously sought in a good matter at all times, and not only when I'm present with you. Paul says that you ought to seek that which is the very best, but these Judaizers... They're after you. In other words, they want to scalp you and just put the scalp in their belt and be able to say, well, we were over at Galatians and we had so many converts, which, of course, would actually not be true at all. And as I said a moment ago about the Galatian epistle, well, Paul has something along this same line to say to the Corinthians. And that's over in 2 Corinthians 11. And I'd like to read that beginning at verse 12 there. "...but what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them that desire an occasion, that wherein they glory they may be found, even as we. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, fashioning themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for even Satan fashioneth himself into an angel of light. It is no great thing, therefore, if his ministers also fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And you see, this same crowd had gone to Corinth, the Corinthians had loved Paul also, and Paul has to warn them of these. They're attracted, and I'm amazed at the very fine presentation that the cults make. I watch TV on some of these programs put out by cults. 
and we have done a certain amount of TV work. And very frankly, the job they do professionally is perfection. But that's the subtle part about it. Everything is attractive. Everything is beautiful to look at. And the ones that are in it are very attractive individuals. And that's what it takes, of course, to put it over. And actually, there is a certain amount of truth. I heard one man who's in a cult, who's actually a liberal, give the Christmas story back at Christmas time. And believe me, no one could have told it any better than he did. And he did a most excellent job. But then he began to interpret it. And I came out with the idea that he didn't even believe in the virgin birth, which I'm confident that he didn't. You see that today, the warning of Paul, both to the Galatians here and to the Corinthians, is very much in order. And you can see why. I would go back over this because it's very important. Now, Paul has a very tender heart, and he likens himself to a mother. Listen to him in verse 19. My little children, my little born ones, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Now, he is speaking to those who are born again, and I don't think he's questioning that. But Paul here wanted to be present with them. And he says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He wanted to be present so he could speak differently. He was concerned. He's using strong language here. But you can see the tender heart of the man. Now, the whole fact of the matter is, they really had not heard the law. Verse 21, he says, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye hear the law? And this day, I would like for you to hear the law. Because a great many today that always talking about the Ten Commandments or talking about some legal system, they don't seem to give the penalty. They don't seem to present the law in its full orb, ministration of condemnation. Now, when God called Moses to the mountain to give the law, have you ever noticed the background of it? In Exodus, the 19th chapter, verse 16, listen to this. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And God says, Stand afar off. Now, do you want to know further about the outcome of the law? Look at the 20th chapter. Just turn the page. Verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. 
And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we'll hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. May I say to you, you and I today cannot conceive how holy God is. And you and I are renegades in God's universe. We are revolutionaries in God's universe. You and I are in a position of not obeying God. We are in the position of being lost sinners in God's universe with no capacity to follow God at all. And he says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. My friend, this world is against God. It's not for God. This world's not getting better at all. This world is becoming more evil each day, and it's been pretty bad since the days God put Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. For it's not subject. The carnal mind, he says, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. No wonder those people trammeled and moved away from the mount and said, we'll die. Why, my friend, God is high and holy and lifted up. And he dwells in glory, and you and I are down here making mud pies in a world because we are made out of mud physically. And we walk down here as creatures that have the audacity to walk contrary to the will of God. And we don't even have the ability to. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, my friend, may I say to you, that's the position of man down here in this world. Now, Paul says, listen to the law. You haven't even heard it yet. And if you listen to it, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law. Do you hear the law? Have you really heard it? Do you know what it says? Now, he begins here, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid, the one by a free maid. And he says, but he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Now, the law of that day, the Code of Hammurabi in Abraham's day, said that a son of a slave woman is a slave. So that Ishmael was born a slave in the home of Abraham, though he was a son of Abraham. But here the free woman was by promise. Now, you see that Isaac was a miracle child. That is, his birth was miraculous. Abraham could not have a son and Paul says in Romans that the womb of Sarah was dead. That is, she just couldn't have a child. The womb of Sarah was a tomb. And out of death, God brought life, if you please. The birth of Isaac was not only a birth, it was a resurrection. And it was miraculous. Now, Paul makes a contrast here between the two. He says, which things are, that is... Paul is going to draw a lesson from it. It contains an allegory, for these are the two covenants. Now, what are the two covenants? The one from Mount Sinai, the law, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. And he compares Hagar to Mount Sinai, the law. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. 
Now, Jerusalem, here is the earthly Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And that Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem that's presented to us in the 20th chapter of Revelation that comes down from God out of heaven. For it's written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. And actually, from Isaac there came Moa than ever came from Hagar, of course. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Now, our birth is a new birth. And that birth comes about by the fact God has promised. Where? John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him... God says, if you'll trust him, you'll be born again. Born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, of the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it's now. And my friend, legalism hates the gospel, the gospel of the free grace of God. Legalism hates it. And you'll get in trouble. When I first started in the ministry, first ordained, an elder came to me one day after I'd preached a sermon on prophecy. And I said, you know, prophecy will get you in trouble. And he said to me, now, Vernon, you're mistaken. Preaching prophecy will never get you in trouble. It'll get you a good crowd, generally. People like to hear prophecy. But he says, if you preach the grace of God, you're going to get in trouble. Now, that's the reason today the gospel is trimmed as it is. I don't mean to complain, but I hear very little gospel in these days. I mean of the pure grace of God, and I know why. Because you get clubbed on the head. You'll be surprised the number of letters I'm going to get from this broadcast today. People say, now, wait a minute. You are to do something else. My friend, you got everything that God has to offer you in Jesus Christ. If I may use the common colloquialism, you get the whole ball of wax when you come to Christ and accept him. Don't tell me I have to seek something after I've been saved from some other source, for instance, even the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. And that's what it means to call Christ a curse, to come and tell me, that I have to do something or go through something or seek something that I did not get when I came and trusted Jesus Christ. Listen to him. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it's now. The natural man hates the gospel of the grace of God. It's in us to hate it because it doesn't require anything of us. It glorifies Christ and turns our eyes to him. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And God is saying to you and me today, you get rid of every bit of your legalism and put all the emphasis on Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Have you really trusted Christ? Are you carrying a spare tire on your little omnibus that today you feel like that you're doing something or being something 
or trying to attain to something adds to what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. If you do, forget it and look to Christ alone and receive everything from him. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. He is to receive all praise and all glory.